So one of those nights, the lights went out, DJ Grandmaster Kaz and Disco Wiz were playing records in a park and they had their equipment plugged into a lamppost. Then when the whole city went black, they were worried that they shorted the whole of New York. Showing his vision, showing the like cockiness, arrogance of youth, just absolutely no fucks given about ripping off the Beatles, which I fully rate. We, I am Q-Tip in this, in this pairing and you are five. Do you disagree? Well, yeah, if you and Tip as the megalomaniacs in each <laughs> relationship want to think that, then go ahead and be my guest. Q-Tip is my title. I don't think that is vital for me to be your idol. But dig this recital. If you can't envision a brother who ain't dissing, slinging this and that, because this and that was missing. Instead, it's been injected. The tribe has been perfected. Oh, yes, it's been selected. Hello, welcome back to Death with the Record. I'm here with Oli, and this week we are taking on our first hip hop album of the series, and that is the Tribal Quest, People's Instinctive Travels, and the Paths of Rhythm. Oli, shall I just pass it over to you? The year was 1990. Do you want to get started with year in music? Yeah, let's get going, man. I mean, as as usual, we're going to start the podcast by just having a little look at the year in music. Was it a good one? Was it a bad one? The one thing about this week is, because we're going to be covering 1990 again in the episode that we have planned for a few weeks' time, I thought it would be a better idea just to focus on some of the hip-hop that was released in this year, just so I avoid repeating myself. And then, after we've had a little talk through some of the the albums, we'll of course try and apply a Rakeem lyric that summarises the year. Which is getting increasingly hard, by the way, can I just add? Yeah, man, there's only so much you can kind of read about him gassing himself up and his rapping abilities. Honestly, my, my opinion of Rakeem has, like, deteriorated the more I've had to do that. It's really sad, but please go on, go on. Anyway, um, so yeah, it was it was a pretty decent year, to be fair, especially for hip-hop groups. Uh, so you got, like, Public Enemy bringing out Fear of a Black Planet, Brand Nubian, One for All, Gangstar, Step in the Arena, an NWA EP came out. Uh, Run DMC as well, and our very own Eric B and Rakeem brought out Let the Rhythm Hit Him. But, you know, despite it being a good hip hop year, there was one song and one verse that I haven't mentioned that definitely left all others in its wake. Oh, yeah. Easily the best verse in 1990. Probably the 90s as a decade, and maybe, oh, wow. even, maybe even the best of all time, Jamie. Jeez. I wondered if you can guess what it is. If I can guess what it is. So it came out in 1990. Yeah, mate. Fucking hell. Um, and a particular verse. Have we got any hints you can possibly give me? Do you know what? I think, I think the best, best thing to, to play do it. Is, might just be to play it to you. All right, I'm looking forward to um, this. So <laughs> yeah, coming. enjoy this. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's got to Mate. I wasn't expecting that. What are we thinking about that? I, I mean, definitely best def, best verse of the of the decade, and quite possibly of all time. Might maybe the best best track of all, best feature of all time. <laughs> yeah, basically. Anyway, my I I was kind of trying to find a Rakeem lyric <laughs> about football or about crying on a pitch. 
you know, to shout oh, out Gaza. But no, nice. I unfortunately couldn't find anything. So mine's actually taken from a song that was released in the 1990 Eric B and Rakim album. Mm. And it's taken from a song called Step Back. And okay. I think it summarises quite well just how revolutionary and unique A Tribe Called Quest, but, you know, especially their leader Q-Tip were at this mm. moment in time. They'd obviously go on to release classic albums in the 1990s and become like a huge mm. force in hip hop. So yeah, my my bar is my piece is speech the original, you can't find these. 89 is mine, so it's the nineties telling you what you need. Nice. I mean, I already can tell you I think you've won this. Oh really? I, I, well I mentioned earlier, like I'm finding it increasingly hard to find good bars and then relate them to I'm just kinda like scrolling through genius and it's not really coming. But my one this week is from All Night Long. So we were talking about hip hop groups earlier. Um, mm. I think Tribe are up there as one of the greatest hip hop groups of all time. So the bar from all night long is. The world's most greatest hip hop You obsolete. You cannot compete. Drop the beat. I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of glitching at straws, maybe slightly. I think. Yeah, it's not terrible. One. I'll. It's not I'm going to take that one as a W for me, though. Yeah, you can have. You can have the dub. Nice one. I mean, yeah, not not to completely derail the conversation or the episode four or five minutes in. But I do think it's interesting noting just how many hip hop groups there were in the 90s as, com as compared to now. It seems like a trend that's kind of disappeared a little bit. Because I mean, even in addition to the six or seven that I've just mentioned, around this time you had like Outkast, De La Soul, mm. Digital Planets, uh, Jurassic Five, Farside, you know, Mob Deep, the, like there's many, many more I could mention. Cypress Hill, Black Moon, yeah. Like, yeah and I know, I feel on. like these days when you think of hip hop groups, you maybe think of like ASAP Mob, maybe Migos. Odd and, Future? Yeah, it, it seems, oh yeah, Odd Future's not a bad, not a bad example actually, but yeah. it just feels like, you know, something that's disappeared slightly. Are there any, are there any reasons off the top of your head you think why that, why that might be? Do you think maybe it's just a case that it's easier to market like an individual rapper than it is compared to a group these days? Like if you think about what happened in kind of the mid 90s and then into the late 90s, early 2000s, like, like Jay-Z and Nas were like the two, maybe the two biggest rappers in the world. It was when NWA or the members of NWA started to establish solo careers like, as, as, as individual rappers. Do you think maybe it's just a case of that groups became a bit of a you know just less cool than all these individuals who are rapping like yeah does that make sense perhaps i don't know maybe i mean i think the other thing as well is like a lot of the groups we just mentioned like are they strictly hip-hop groups they're mainly like a producer and mm. a rapper working together like eric b and rakeem or the thing about that is that yeah well, like exactly like these days like can you imagine like drake and 40 like, instead of just being drake they were named a group and yeah, they were like yeah, an artist because yeah. that would be the equivalent so I, i'm not sure that's an interesting point. One thing I will briefly mention on, on the topic of groups. So a couple of years ago, Jalen and Jacoby uh, of ESPN, Jalen Rose of, of basketball fame, did like a, a hip hop group bracket, like a final four bracket, where there was kind of all the, the greatest hip hop groups of all time kind of going against each other, duking it out. And the final four ended up being Tribe, Outkast, Wu-Tang Clan and NWA. And then I think the final two was Outkast and Wu-Tang. Um, we will put that bracket up on our socials this week for you guys to have a look at and see whether you think they got it right. But I was a bit shocked that the Tribe got booted out in the final four and mm. didn't even make it to, to the final. But um, anyway, should we move on to the album? Yeah, yeah, that's great, mate. So obviously, most important bit, it is the music. I wanted to open up the discussion about this album with a focus on the actual name of the album. So People's Instinctive Travels and The Passive Rhythm. 
So a lot of the ideas I'm about to discuss are touched on in Hanif Abdul-Rakib's book, Go Ahead in the Rain, which I'm sure we'll be mentioning more than once today. So if you kind of bear with me, Ali, first of all, I wanted to return back like, some years to the Southern American states during slavery when black African slaves were literally banned from having access to drums and other instruments because white slave owners feared that it would help them kind of mobilize against them and, and stir up dissent. So as a result of that, kind of the African rhythms and musical practices that they had were passed down through generations, either for using their own voices or using the sound you generate from drumming on your own body. So if we skip ahead quite a while from this, along this, if you'll let me say, path of rhythm, to 1997 in New York around the advent of hip-hop. So obviously this time, as with any kind of origin story or, you know, there's a lot of mythology, there's all these mythic stories about particular street parties that led to hip-hop and particular moments and, and how they all directly correlate to how the genre developed. Like maybe some of those stories aren't strictly true or they didn't happen exactly in the way that they're often recounted. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't think that matters for the purposes of this. They still reveal something about that period of time and how the genre of hip-hop conceives itself and, and you know, how the paths of rhythm fit into that. So anyway, that summer, 1997, it's really, really wildly hot in New York and there's lots of power shortages going over around the city and the lights would be going out. So one of those nights, the lights went out, DJ Grandmaster Kaz and Disco Wiz were playing records in a park and they had their equipment plugged into a lamppost, which was quite a uh, kind of normal practice at that point. Then when the whole city went black, they were worried that they kind of shorted the whole of New York. But anyway, as a consequence of, of the power going out, there were some riots and looting in the city, and DJ Grandmaster Kaz himself went to his local hi-fi store where everyone was breaking in and stole a mixer. Obviously, this had the direct consequence of leading to further integration of microphones, being able to mix two or more records together more easily, and then supposedly from that, the beginnings of hip-hop emerged as we know it today. So I'm bringing this up for a couple of reasons. Firstly, to highlight how black music has always been criminalised by, by white people, but also to show how a tribe called Quest positioned themselves in this like path of rhythm and how they took on that mantle. You know, there's a great moment in the tribe documentary where Tip talks about how they would make beats uh, in their high school just by banging on the drums. They're clearly aware of like the legacy of African American music and, and how that works. Ollie, Q-Tip was 20 years old when this album came out. That's crazy. Was, in fact, he turned 20 the day this album came out, and he was clearly already thinking on like a super conceptual level about his music. I guess my question is, do you think you can like, hear that reflected in this album? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think this album stands out even now as something mm. sonically unique and creative. So you can only imagine what the reaction must have been like 30 years ago when it dropped. Yeah. I, just, I think just the amount of weird sounds and strange noises is what boggles me slightly. Like who else in 1990, apart from Q-Tip, was going to be using a chorus of frog noises on a hip-hop album. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it's tied to something that I've, I've read from him in the last few years, that when he was making the album, he said that he wanted to make something as close as possible to the Beatles, to Sly and the Family Stone, Earth, Wind and Fire, as was possible for hip-hop. And I think for a 20-year-old to have that kind of ambition is stunning. But then this album kind of matches up to those groups in terms of it, in terms of the experimentation, like the yeah. scale to some of the tracks, like the, the frog noises, for example, I think that's on after hours, but yeah. even in that song, there's these like huge timpani drums that just sound cinematic would be, would be like a good way to describe it. Here I'm talking about last night's game, trying to remember someone's name. So here the frogs dancing in the street. Once again, Ali will bring up the beat like this. 
the experimentation in this album, like how psychedelic it is as well. Talking about like, the Beatles influence and yeah. saying you wanted to make a Beatles album, like he's kind of succeeded on on those on those grounds. And all those, you know, all the kind of strange, dreamy interludes that the album's mm. connected to. She's like they're super psychedelic. I guess I guess they're kind of like hip hop skits, but rather than yeah. your kind of classic gangster rap chat about girls or money or guns. You've just got Jerobi White kind of speaking about the other yeah. members of a tribe called Quest and other kind of mysterious musings about space and sound and rhythm and all this kind of stuff. To be fair, like as experimental and psychedelic as this album is, like there are lots of it, lots of parts that are really quite melodic and, and catchy at the same time, which I reckon is probably down to the samples that they've used, all the old jazz, funk, and soul records that, that Q-Tip had obviously poured over. Do you have a, a favourite sample on the record, Al? I'm not right. So I'm not saying this is one is my favourite musically, but mm. one of one of my favourite moments of the album is at the beginning of "Look of Lucian," and mm. Tip samples the French national anthem, uh, yeah, "La yeah. Marseillaise." I think yeah. I'm saying that right. And Probably uh, not. funnily enough, that's also used at the start of the Beatles track. Of course, uh, "Love Is All You Need." But yeah. then, unlike that track, there's just a kind of banging hip hop beat that comes straight in after this grand yeah. orchestral opening. is like, I know the song is about a French rapper and he's referencing that through using the French national anthem but he must have known what he was doing when he started the song with that sample oh kind 100%. of showing his vision yeah. showing the like cockiness arrogance of mm. youth just absolutely no fucks given about ripping off the Beatles which I fully rate yeah. but, um, I think from from a music point of view there's an earth wind and fire sample on Mr. Muhammad Mm. And I just love the way that that song kind of cuts back to the sample as a kind of chorus. And I think mm. in a nutshell, that song and that sample specifically just demonstrate how on this album, the music can literally just go anywhere and you'll be going yeah. along quite nicely. And suddenly Q-Tip will just completely pull the rig out, the rug out from underneath you and just chuck you down a rabbit hole. I mean, I think like the, the sampling, yeah, the sampling on this album, the way it, it it kind of goes all over the place, it aligns to what we were saying earlier about like the paths of rhythm. Mm. Like he integrates the one moment there'll be this jazz sample, then it will suddenly like run to this funk or, or soul bit, and I think he's very conscious, cute. This is about like repurposing all the sounds that like an older black generation would have grown up listening to into hip hop, and it's worth mentioning that around this time, so the years. 1987 to 1992 are broadly considered the golden age of sampling in hip-hop. So after that point, um, sampling became a bit more difficult. In the kind of late 80s, early 90s, around this time this album was being made, basically the record labels thought that hip-hop was this kind of, you know, hip-hop will maybe come and go, there's not really necessarily that much of a commercial 
interest in it. Um, so they didn't really give a shit about sampling. There's like a quote which I read somewhere which is saying it was virtually a free-for-all. So they would let any samples can go. Tip would sample whatever he wanted and, you know, he'd have six samples in one song and that was whatever. The exception to that, interestingly, is, is Lou Reed. So obviously sampled um, Walk on the Wild Side in Can I Kick It? Lou Reed demanded 100% royalties and 100% uh, publishing rights for that sample, which they gave him. So now that song, everything to do with that song, all the money has always gone to, to Lou Reed. Mm. Anyway, this changed uh, in 1991. The Turtles actually sued De La Soul for using um, elements from the song You Showed Me. And then that lawsuit just kind of opened up the floodgates. And from that point on, samples had to be cleared. To illustrate how kind of bad and expensive it got for hip-hop art- artists or, or producers, on the album Midnight Marauders, 50% of the whole budget for the album was spent on clearing samples, nice which to me is just that's just mind-blowing. From this album where it was a free-for-all, no one really gave a shit, to half of the budget going towards sampling, it's quite like a change, isn't it? Mm, definitely. In the tools of the people making the music, to have that just completely not locked off, but kind of narrowed so dramatically mm. must have been... I mean, it's just a, it's a massive hurdle. Yeah, I mean, I th- to be fair, sampling... Sampling is one of those things that it's you can kind of see it from both sides, right? Like I don't know that much of the details about how the actual processes of of royalties and publishing rights and all that kind of mechanisms work, but there is cases in which maybe the artist sampling gets screwed over, but there's also yeah. lots of cases where the the artist that is sampled also gets yeah, fucked over. Lou Reed, notwithstanding. I've been trying to do a bit of reading about this, and to be honest, there's a lot of websites that just offer like really boring text so i'm going to try and <laughs> explain this in a way that isn't completely crap i guess it's legal tool right Let's yeah it, yeah are... ultimately and so mm. basically when you if, if you want to sample a song there's two things that you need to have the first mm. thing is the license for the usage of the master recording which is often owned by the label and then the yeah. second thing is the license for the usage of the underlying composition which is controlled by the publisher or the songwriter and basically, it, yeah, if you're going to sample anything, you need to have those two things. And then the advance cost and the revenue percentage that you negotiate will vary depending on the sample and the song. And yeah, it, it, it can obviously vary dramatically. I think what just what you were saying there about the person being sampled, quite an interesting point to highlight the issues around this is one of the most sampled songs in music history is a 1969 track called Amen Brother by the soul group, The Winstons. Mm. And basically artists have specifically sampled in that song what is now known as the Amen Break. And it's basically just like a drum drum break that lasts about seven seconds and was performed by the drummer Gregory Coleman. (laughs) Even though it's seven seconds long, it's one of the most sampled bits of music in history. It appears in thousands of tracks, from hip-hop to jungle, drum and bass, David Bowie, Oasis, The Prodigy, Amy Winehouse. I mean, it is literally the basis for the whole genre of jungle, yeah. isn't it? Like, every jungle song, one way or other, features that sample. But what's messed up is nobody from the Winstons saw any money from these songs, and Coleman himself, the guy who actually played this Amen Break, developed a drug addiction and died homeless and destitute in 2006 in Atlanta. So there is definitely, I know mm. it's, it's easy to kind of be, you know, distracted by the appearance of like big monolithic powerful labels, but there is definitely a kind of human element to the people that perhaps don't get, you know, the financial help that they need when people are using their music. For sure. I mean, I think the other thing is as well with some things like this, there's, 
like sampling is not just so for example in that in that the amen break as you said it's like literally seven seconds of a, like a drum break beat but there's some samples where the whole fucking song is sampled to make another song so yeah, like yeah, so i was yeah. thinking about this the other day obviously the song the the track final credits by midland mm. was I think was it 2016 or 2017. You could not go anywhere without hearing that song in London. Every house party, you'd have some bloke playing it on his little orcs or any night out. The other day, I was—I can't remember what led me down this rabbit hole—but I was looking at who sampled website for that track. And have you ever listened to the original sample for that yeah, song? Yeah, yeah, I have, man. It's, yeah, it's literally the exact like not. It's like he's sampled it a bit and added some stuff. It is the exact same song as that Midland's added that a cappella over the top of it. And it's like yeah. it's just a joke. Like there's sampling a seven second breakbeat and then there's sampling a whole song. I mean, it just makes you think about like, you know, surely there should be some legal element of you're using the sample to this extent or that extent. Laying in late one night. I think, yeah, loads of house music that's based on that kind of disco sound is basically mm. just have a 4-4 intro that the producer's <laughs> written and then just like slot quite nicely in like an extended clip of the song. Um, yeah. But it would, this is the problem about something. I, we don't know what Midland paid for that. It would be, it would be really interesting. I would love to, to know, know that, that information. So if anybody out there can tell us that, then yeah, definitely get in touch. Like, yeah, so how much money did the original artist make off what was probably the most popular disco house track over the last like, five the past, years? Yeah. The past five years. Yeah, that's super interesting. Anyway, just to, to move on and come back to to Tribe, the reaction to the album at the time, you know we love to to bring up the enemy on this on this show. For once, enemy got it right. Uh, Ian McCann famously wrote that a tribe called Quest put no feet in the wrong place here. This is not rap, it is near perfection. So really strong words from the enemy there. The other kind of notable review is from The Source, who bestowed this album with its first ever hallowed five mic rating, calling it a completely original musical and spiritual approach to hip-hop with sophisticated production invoking a jazz flavour. So just for reference for people who aren't familiar with it, the source most hip-hop fans will know is probably the world, I think it's the world's longest-running uh, rap magazine, and it was a huge part of establishing hip-hop culture in, in the 90s and, and even into the 2000s as well. So to get the five-mic rating from them uh, in a review of an album was a massive fucking deal. Right, before we move on to the Apex discussion, just to round up the discussion about the album, Ollie, you got some favourite tracks? I reckon probably Benita Applebum would be my favourite mm. on the record. I, did, I think it's probably one of the best Tribe songs, full stop. But I think yeah, in I terms of the album, it's quite necessary where it is, because it's mm. Tip kind of experimenting with his flow a bit more. I think the few songs prior to that are all quite repetitive in terms of meter and flow and everything's, yeah. everything's kind of breakneck. Whereas I think it's good to have a slower one in there that just kind of breaks things up. And it's him at his kind of... When I when I think about Q-Tip at his very best, he is smooth, mellifluous. Yeah. And this is this is a pretty good example of that, I think. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, Fife is the one who's smooth like butter. Whereas for me, you're right, Tip is the... Especially introduced that I, that kind of style on Beneath Applebaum. He's the really, really smooth 
the way he uses space on that as well like it's really spacious rapping if that if that makes sense um but yeah i would say the first eight songs in general for me are like top notch would never would not skip any of them seeing as this is the first hip-hop album we're doing favorite bar as well there's one i think it might be on i think it might be on after hours hmm. i had the blues but i shut them loose a jeep is blasting from the urban streets loops of funk over hardcore beats the moon dabbles in the morning sky as the minutes just creep on by i re i do yeah. really like that song actually i think that's yeah because he obviously q-tip has a habit of telling stories on some of his songs like i lost my wallet in el segundo but i <laughs> i don't really like that song that much Whoa. but i think from a narrative from a storytelling perspective after hours and that that bar is really top yeah him it's just kind of him walking through the city of new york isn't it it's yeah it's amazing I have to introduce, I know you've already mentioned it, but like we can't get away with not saying it. The, um, I think it's the second verse on Beneath Apple Bond. To me, that's like, yeah, that is Q-Tip approaching his, his very best. But yeah, do you want to do you want to move on to Apex, Al? Yeah, yeah, let's get going, man. Um, so as as always, Apex imagines a situation where Tribe's career is laid out before as like a landscape with all the peaks and troughs. What me and Jamie want to work out is where does people's instinctive travels fall? Is this Mount Everest their best work? Or are people more a fan of Midnight Marauders, the low-end theory? Maybe, maybe you're one of probably not many, that prefers 1998's The Love Movement. So for those maybe not completely familiar with Tribe's discography, I'll just run through it very quickly. 1990 saw them release their debut. Only a year later, they brought out The Low End Theory. 1993 saw them release Midnight Marauders. 96, Beats, Rhymes and Life. 98, The Love Movement. And then there was quite a big gap to four years ago when they released We Got It From Here. Thank you for your service. Jamie, I think this week's Apex discussion is going to rely quite a lot on how each of us views A Tribe Called Quest and the importance of, you know, specific members in there. If there's one person that maybe we haven't talked about as much during this episode as maybe we should have, then I'd probably say it's Five Dog, the Five Foot Assassin, the Five Foot Freak. Malik the Freak, <laughs> however, you, Five Diggy Dog, whatever the freaky, you want to call it. The Funky Diabetic, yeah. Funky Diabetic. He's not on people's instinctive travels very much. He's only on four of the album's songs. Mm. And my personal favourite thing about listening to A Tribe Called Quest is hearing Fife and Tip interact as MCs on a level playing field. And that just, that just doesn't exist on this album. And I'm not, I'm not going to make any excuses for Fife's contribution to this record because Tip wrote all the beats, he wrote all the bars, he had to pull Fife into the studio to record. So this album doesn't reflect Five Dog anywhere near his best. And it doesn't I'm, reflect Five Dog at all, really, does yeah, it? Yeah, it doesn't. And, I, and I'm not trying to belittle Tip's immense contributions to a Tribe Called Quest because, quite simply, without Tip, there is no Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, of course. But I don't view Fife as just a kind of sideman. I see him as a like a really, really integral part of what I love about the group. And I think if, I, if, I, if I'm if I thinking about my favourite Tribe tracks, that's kind of reflected. Stuff like Bugging Out, 
jazz, check the rhyme on the low end theory, um, electric relaxation on Midnight Marauders. Mm. I really enjoy when they split the MC work 50-50 and riff off each other and just yeah. work together. So, I mean, it's obviously a massive cliche, but it is. it does feel a little, like, little bit like yin and yang. And it was I, the abstract. And me, the five-footer. I kicks the mad style, so step off the Frankfurter. Yo, Fife, you remember that routine? That we used to make spiffy like Mr. Clean? Um, um, a tidbit, um, a smidgen. I don't get the message, so you got to <laughs> okay. run the pigeon. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point. Well, their flows go together very nice. Their voices yeah. as well. You've got like, the, the nasally flow of Tip with it really high-pitched, like, five, five, like up yeah. here and he's down here. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So as far as I'm concerned, this can't be the best Tribe album because Fife is barely on it. And where he is, mm. he just isn't near his best. And for me, the low-end theory is Tribe's apex. Okay, so on on this mountain range, is people in Sinter Travels near to... Definitely. Near the, near the summit, okay. Definitely. I mean, so first of all, before I kind of get get into trying to respond to that, can we acknowledge the fact that, you know, Tribe, in three years, from 1990 to 1993, excuse me, released three classic albums. Even yeah. if you don't rate this one necessarily as much as Low in Theory or vice versa with Midnight Marauders, three years, three unbelievable albums and a group made of people in between the ages of 19 and 20, whatever it would have been, 22, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's incredible. That, first of all, is incredible. In forms of this debate around Tip versus Fife, as you said, Tribe Called Quest wouldn't exist in any aspect without Tip. He was the one who got everyone in the studio, he produced all the beats, he wrote all the lyrics on this album. He, I mean, their studio was near Madison Square Garden, right? And he would have, you know, Fife would be too busy watching Knicks games to even come to the studio. So we wouldn't hear any of Fife's bars whether you like them or not in later albums, if it wasn't for Tip. So mm-hmm. we got that out of the way. I wanted to produce uh, or present you with a quote, Ollie, to kind of un- explain why someone like myself, who's just a huge Q-Tip fanboy, kind of sees this album as maybe not their apex, but the one that they enjoy the most or find the most satisfying. So this quote, from again, from Hanif Abdul-Rakib says, Even if it is never explicitly spoken, most musical groups across genres are sold to us with a single genius at their centre. Everyone else in the group just adds to the canvas after the visionary has had his or her turn at it. This person is also the group's propeller, pushing them past whatever boundaries they thought they'd hit. The Beach Boys had Brian Wilson, a tribal quest had Q-Tip. I genuinely believe Q-Tip is on that level of Brian Wilson kind of genius, and he certainly shares Brian Wilson's fucking bizarre or lack of people skills, shall we say. As someone who loves Q-Tip this much... Yes, I appreciate that on Low End Theory and Midnight Marauders, there's more of that back and forth between Tip and Fife. But to me, it doesn't really matter. Maybe this isn't the apex or the necessarily their best or most significant artistic work, but it is the one I enjoy most. Like The fact that it's not as refined, it's a bit more chaotic and a bit more psychedelic. To me, that is, that is, that is why I enjoy it okay. as much as I do. I think, I think the other thing that I want to mention is, even aside from Fife Dog's minimal contributions to their debut... I actually think, I mean, I can't speak highly enough of Tip's production on this album. Like, it's trailblazing, it's it's unique. So yeah. that that's, that's not of the question. But what I also believe is that as an MC and a rapper, Tip develops massively from this point in time. I think there's quite a lot of songs on this record where he's trying to speak at breakneck speed and with his accent and his voice, sometimes that can come across as quite grating when he's just kind of yapping away yeah. in like a nasal voice. He's not fully got into his Q-tip style yet as he yeah. came to As like it. Mr. Smooth, Mr. Mellifluous that he yeah. exhibits on stuff like Benita Applebum to be fair. Mm. 
So yeah, I understand what you're saying that um, you, you have like a soft spot for this album because of all the intricacies that you just said. But I think if we're talking about their best album and you know all of them operating at their peak, not even just Five Dog, then I think you're probably looking at low end theory. Maybe you could make an argument for Midnight Marauders as well. Okay, well, something I do want to mention here for for the listeners at home, has you you know delivered that crushing blow and you know the grand conclusion of oh well you know low end theory yes and maybe Midnight Marauders. When we first met Ollie, and I'm talking about the day or the moment we met, we had a conversation about Tribe. If you remember, if you remember that, do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do, Jamie. So you are the only person in the history of music who got into a Tribe called Quest through the album The Love Movement. I explicitly remember meeting Come you that day. On. I remember you meeting you that day and we were talking about Tribe and then you start going on about Beats, Rhymes and Life and The Love Movement. And I was like, who is this guy? I'm not sure if he's on like another plane to me, like kind of Galaxy Brain take of like those are the two best albums. But you talk about how, you know, Low End Theory is this and, you know, with all this conviction. Jamie, You're Jamie, fucking Jamie. Fir- The first two albums you listened to for Tribe were Love Movement and Beats, Rhymes and Life. This Am is, I wrong? This is shameful. What's happened here is you've lost the argument so now you're inventing situations. <laughs> this is not I, I got into Tribe Called Quest and Midnight Marauders said, and Beats, no. Rhymes and Life. I hadn't even heard Beats, Rhymes and Life. Yeah, exactly. And Love Movement. That's, 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 it's just not true. I don't know what you, what you want me to say. Like, we need, we need to move on to alternate cuts before I get okay. into that. All right, before we move on, I want to have finished this segment with one quote. So we've concluded that, fine, low end theory is the apex, whatever. This quote from Q-Tip will illustrate how I feel about moments like this. The hardest part of being in a group is constantly considering someone else. That's Q-Tip circa 2010. So that's how I feel about doing this podcast with you every now and again, <laughs> Ollie. We, I am Q-Tip in this, in this pairing and you are five. Do you disagree? <laughs> Well, yeah, if you and Tip as the megalomaniacs Ow. in each relationship Ow. want to think that, then go ahead and be my you guest. I mean, fucking hell, megalomaniac. Jeez. Right, we're moving on. Shut, shut Apex down. We're moving on. Right, next segment is, of course, alternate cuts. Usually, this is the point where we kind of examine some of the um, opinions critically um, or in the culture about a particular album, and we throw out our own alternate cuts or opinions on how they relate to those. This week, I don't think we're going to do that. We've spent the past 15 minutes talking about Fife and Tip and it resulted in Oddie calling me a megalomaniac. So it's probably best that we talk about something a bit a bit more lighthearted. So having spoken about Tip and Fife, that is also ignoring two of the other members of A Tribe Called Quest and this collective, which are, of course, Ali and Jerobi. Having watched the documentary, the Michael Rappaport Tribe Called Quest documentary, those you know, Ali and Jerobi come across far, far better than Tip and Fife ever do. They both seem like genuinely very down-to-earth, modest, humble, kind, pleasant, pleasant people. Um, And I feel it's only right that we salute them for their their part in the group. Now, Ali, Jirobi, of course, famously left the Tribal Quest after this album to follow his dream and become a chef. Mm. So this guy literally left the greatest hip-hop group of all time to become a chef. But he's quite good at it, isn't he? Like, he doesn't seem to have any regrets. that's the beautiful thing about him. He clearly he was following his passion, and there's that. Yeah, as you say, not really, not really bothered about the group going on to achieve what they did because he he retrained and opened a restaurant. So yeah, big up, big up, Jerome. Yeah, you can go on YouTube if you want, and there's a video where he cooks a grilled lamb and plum confit and grilled fruit salad, and it looks nice. looks really, really dank as a, as <laughs> certain people would describe his cooking. Anyway, the point is, it got me thinking about when musicians have left their music careers and then, you know, walked away from stardom to do fairly innocuous jobs. So Fife, as well, in the Tribe documentary, he briefly tries to make it as a high school basketball 
scout slash recruiter slash coach. And I mean, I feel bad for saying it, rest in peace, but it's pretty painful to watch. He, he yeah. doesn't quite have the talent for it necessarily that, that Jerobi does for, for cooking, but fair play for trying. Other very famous examples in music are Garfunkel left Simon and Garfunkel at their peak to go and become a maths teacher, which is <laughs> somehow not even in the top 10 weird, weirdest things that Garfunkel has done. I, I, I won't go into details, but just go on his website and click on his book list if you ever want to have an amusing 30 minutes. Garfunkel is a weird bloke. Um, anyway, I've come up with this little challenge, Ollie. So I have five musicians I'm going to name and then five okay. jobs which uh, these musicians have pursued after or, or instead of music. What your job is going to be is to match up the musician to the job, if that makes sense. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so some of these musicians, I'm sure you'll be familiar with some of them, perhaps less so. So the musicians are J.B. Gill from JLS, I'm sure you remember fondly. X Factor, Indeed. yeah, got that. Russell Senior from Pulp, I know you're a massive Pulp fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, Zia McCabe, who was the guitarist in the Dandy Warhols, if you remember them. Okay. Then Jeff Skunk Baxter, who was the guitarist for both Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers at one point. And okay. then finally, Terry Chimes, who was the original drummer of The Clash. So we have JLS, Pulp, Dandy Warhols, Steely Dan, and The Clash, if you want to remember okay. them that way. The jobs that I will present you with are as follows. We have a chiropractor, a farmer, an antiques dealer, an estate agent, and a missile defence expert. <laughs> missile defence expert? Yeah, so quite the variety from farmer to missile defence expert. So I guess your job now is to try and match up, you know, farmer, antiques dealer, missile defence, estate agent, and, and a chiropractor to the, to the ones I've just okay. described. So just off the bat, so is it John Skunk Baxter? Jeff Jeff Skunk. Je- Jeff Jeff Skunk Baxter. Oh, Steely Dan. He, he, he sounds like a mis- missile defence person to me. Ding ding ding. Wrong? Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, that correct. Okay, Steely Dan. Steely Dan screams missile defence expert, doesn't he? Um, I'm gonna go with JLS JB Gill Farmer. Yeah, correct. Correct right? again. I'm, how the fuck? Okay. How to get that one? <laughs> then we got Dandy Warhols. Clash and pulp and pulp. and we have antique dealer, okay. estate agent, and chiropractor left. Okay, I reckon pulp to chiropractor. No, oh, you were doing really? so well as well, yeah. Okay, pulp to um, antique dealer. Yeah, pulp could not be an estate agent. Okay, so pulp, and then we have estate agent. I reckon Dandy Warhols. Correct, which leaves. So that means uh, the drum of the, the drum of the Clash became a, a chiropractor. Yeah. So, you, so I got four out of five with with right? some with some kind of yeah with some maybe some. It get, I guess it gets easier as you go. Along, yeah, really, doesn't I it? mean, well, I, you kind of have to work backwards. This was my thinking at least. Once you know that, obviously Jeff Baxter's got to be a missile defense expert because he was in Steely Dan. <laughs> then from there you can work things out. I would have yeah, thought yeah. I would have thought you'd say that JLS JB Gill from JLS would have gone for a state agent because JLS is a very you know we've definitely met some estate agents over our time living in London yeah, who, who yeah, belonged yeah. in JLS whereas Pulp. Wearing wearing suits from shiny from, sheeny suits from New Look yeah, and things like New that. New Look Man, yeah, yeah. What a yeah, what yeah. a brand. Um, yes, I mean that's alternate cuts for today. I'm not really sure we talked about anything particularly deep or meaningful, but I think we we touched on that earlier, didn't we? With sampling, and we everything, did, so. and we we've lightened the mood yeah. after our um, confrontation. Of it. Yeah. So do you want to take take things away for the final segment, please? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so as always, we're going to end the podcast with our album cover. Hall of Fame and basically this just imagines a situation 
where the record cover is trying to get into a nightclub <laughs> and Jamie and I are on the door. You know, fortunately, we're not judging it on whether it's got a credible ID or the shoes it's wearing. We're judging it on some different criteria. Number one, aesthetics. Number two, originality. Number three, harmony between music and artwork. And lastly, whether or not you can consider this to be an iconic cover. Mm. As with most reputable doormen, there are different stages to our club. The highest level of Hall of Fame is GOAT, so straight in, no questions asked. Next level down is VIP, so it's very solid cover, good work, they'll have their own table. The next is ticket on the door, you know, just coming in. Jamie and I feeling generous tonight, you've been queuing up for a while in the rain, you can come on in. And then the last one is name's not down, you're not coming in. That's embarrassing. Get out of my sight. Don't want to. Don't want to see you around you're here anymore. You're bad. You are. Yeah, you're bad. So to get things started, I, I've got a bit of a confession to make on this one. Go on. So the album cover for People's Instinctive Travels. If you go on Spotify, the cover shown for this album is the remastered. Is the 20, yeah, the remastered. Yeah, album. it's the twenty fifth anniversary edition. I think from five years which ago. Is, yeah, which is actually quite different to the original in that the majority of the newer version or this anniversary version is in black and white. Yeah. So I'd basically planned to make this big point about how the use of black and white uh, ties in so well with the album and Tribe's impact on hip hop <laughs> because they're because they're like a shot of colour and a shot of fun in a bland urban city I electrifying see. a genre. But it's beautiful stuff. Then, beautiful stuff. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. But then I realised that the actual cover has no black and it's white. It's like it's it, all so colour. Yeah, it. yeah, it just went out the window. No, no matter though. I really like the cartoon figures on this cover mm. of the Tribe. It kind of reminds me quite strongly of Keith Haring's street graffiti yeah. from the 80s and the 90s, so it's very New York. It's um, quite Basquiat think, as well, I find. Yeah, def- definitely. And it just ties in quite nicely with the mysterious interludes that are kind of littered throughout the album as well, like who are these kind of four mysterious urban heroes, like characters. Yeah, I think there's probably parallels stylistically between this album cover and Beats, Rhymes and Life, if you're thinking about the kind of mm. pan-African coloured cartoon figures mm. in the midst of city life. But I think whereas the later record looks somewhat bloated and nightmarish, kind of strangely mirroring the group's internal problems, I think the debut seems kind of innocent and cheerful by comparison. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, I just think it's a great album cover. I'm going to say I think it should be VIP. Okay. The only reason I say that is because if we were doing, I'm not not meaning to bang on about low ended theory all the time, but I think if we were doing covering low end theory, we'd be cracking out goat for the first time in the series. Okay, so there's a lot to take in there. I think generally speaking, Tribe are a great album cover artist or album cover group. Yeah. I think, as you said, their first three albums, this low end theory, Midnight Rollers. I think you could all individually argue that they are approaching goat level, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They have that really cohesive aesthetic across all their work, the Afrocentric colours that you referenced, the little kind of the stick man, and yeah, they're, like, they're very cohesive. I think, will you let me make an argument for GOAT? Or do you think maybe like... But I don't, because I feel like if you're going to let people's instinctive travels in for GOAT, then you by definition have to let Midnight Marauders and Low End Theory, and can, can a group have three GOAT albums? Maybe, maybe you're right. Uh, to be fair, Low End Theory is definitely the most iconic of the three, isn't it? Yeah. Funny aside, actually, do you want to know, can you guess which model Q-Tip originally wanted to have on the cover for that album? For Low End Theory. 
Yeah. I don't... Was it Naomi Campbell? Yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> Naomi Campbell. Yeah, yeah. The, Good the, knowledge. The Benita Applebaum kind of figure. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> interesting. One one thing I will mention that you're... you're speaking of Tribe being a great album cover group, there are obviously some exceptions to that, um, or one <laughs> particular exception. Your favourite album of, of the oh, group. <laughs> that album cover is dire. It's, that is not it's even, the worst album cover I've ever seen in my yeah, life. It's not even just, I'm not even exaggerating, yeah. I don't think. Is it, is it worse than Stillmatic with The Pigeon? Yes, yes. Do you think it's worth than the pigeon? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because there's nothing funny about this, is there? It's just, it's just, it's just bl- arrogant. It's like, almost like, I can't believe this was the album cover, like, try with the same group that made this. It's like... It just shows how badly things had become by that point. If I said, like, the font reminds you of kind of, like, a poster you'd see for, like, a rom-com. Do you know what I mean yeah, by that? It's yeah, just, like the holiday. Yeah, it, it is the holiday. It is prime, like, Jack Black kind of fodder, that album cover. It, it's absolutely awful. So should we go VIP then? I, th- I think VIP is fair. All right. Well, in that case, into the VIP, have a table, uh, people's instinctive travels. If we ever get to do low in theory, I guess we have our first GOAT album cover. As of yeah. now, there's still not been a GOAT um, of this series. We will, we'll see how that progresses, I suppose. Like, subscribe. As always, please let us know what you think. If you think that I am the tip of this group <laughs> and Ollie is the five, let us know in the comments as well. But as always, we'll see you next week. <laughs>